Hello and welcome to Forgotten Convicts. This is Emma Watkins speaking. This particular episode is going to be focusing on female pauper emancipists. Pauper emancipists then are individuals who were in need of or receiving charitable assistance and who were also former convicts in Australia. Particularly I'm focusing on Van Diemen's land but looking at some comparisons elsewhere as in Australia as well. So Firstly, then, there were far less female pauper emancipists than there were males. There are a number of reasons for this, largely because there were less females transported as convicts to the colonies. There were less females in the colonies. Also because of the greater likelihood of marriage for females, providing them with a support network um, in older age. However, just because there were less of them, so less females, doesn't mean that they should be overlooked. So we won't be following AGL Shaw's line of thinking here, quote, of the females, less need be said, for they comprise only one-sixth of the total. So we won't be following this line of thinking. We will be focusing on females. Approximately 20% of those transported to Australia were females, so around 25,000 Despite Shaw's dismissive quote then, the importance of female convict experience has now been really widely um, acknowledged. There are some fantastic works on the subject. So you have the work of Robinson, who did work on the first 40 years of settlement in Australia, and showed that female convicts were petty, first-time offenders who had suffered harsh conditions in Britain. You also have Badeau in 1979, looking at the circumstances, the demographic information and the occupational circumstances of Welsh female convicts. And after this, of course, you had Deborah Oxley, who took an aggregate approach to researching female convicts transported to New South Wales and found that they arrived with much needed skills and trade experience. And there are many, many other um, examples which you can find in the blog related to this episode. So the lives of women under sentence then affected their prospects in freedom and later life, so after they left the convict system. And Daniels points out that those women who were notably successful that we um, kind of hear about, so Maria Lord, Mary Raby, who's on the Australian note, those kind of notably successful female convicts or former female convicts were able to be so because of their marriages. Um, this, this is what Daniels argues. So the capital and support that marriage provided helped them be successful and to essentially utilize their skills and intelligence. Largely, women were granted land alongside their husbands, and only in a very few cases were they granted land themselves. And this only happened early on. And because of this, most women shared farm work with their husbands, but they were not themselves landowners. However, many did inherit their husbands' businesses and land uh, when their husbands died. So they became innkeepers and hotel keepers in their own right through this process. Others became self-employed through sewing, washing clothes, milliners, seamstresses, nurses and midwives. However, the range of employment, as Daniel points, Daniels points out, was limited. 
Most women were employed as servants. For example, a muster of New South Wales in 1828 showed that 58% of women were employed in domestic service, 15% as housekeepers, 4% as special servants, and 6% as laundresses. Indeed, quote, the great majority of women neither established business nor became independent, but exchanged life as a government servant for life as a free servant. So few women then could improve themselves through work or support themselves easily. As the colony grew, so did demand for servants. But the competition also grew from free immigrant women coming over to the colonies as well. And another barrier as well was that domestic service was usually kind of a live-in working job. And so work for wages for those who had children wasn't always possible and was usually not possible, in fact, and because of this, many resorted to the orphanages. So often, marriage was the easiest course of freedom then, material comfort and normal life. And while women certainly could and did contribute to that family income, their ability was restricted by family responsibilities and the nature of the work that was actually available to them. And as always, much of their work was invisible both at the time and also in the records. So women women had then fewer economic opportunities than men, which is not surprising. And so marriage was a viable and even superior option for many women. Indeed, the government passed legislation to ensure economic support for women who did marry. But still, by the 1850s, there were so many cases of abandoned wives and families in South Australia that the destitute board asked the Crown solicitor to prosecute the husbands. Yet, the authorities wanted and encouraged women to marry, ultimately. In the 1840s, the unemployment was consistently high, wages were relatively depressed, and the need for social welfare was high as well. So the Labour market was unfavourable and it was less favourable for women during this kind of first half of the 19th century. And if we look at kind of comparisons then, Australia and Britain in the 19th century were similar in terms of the narrow occupational options then for female workers. There were few jobs in which sex was irrelevant essentially. Domestic service was the principal form as I pointed out of employment for females. So very few women in Australia were employed as clerical or in nursing roles at this time. So nursing was really seen as a middle-class female job. And clerical and sales assistant jobs were overwhelmingly male still. So due to economic differences, proportionally more women in Britain worked in factories than did Australian women. So nearly 70% of female labour in Britain was, again, domestic service, laundry work, dress manufacturing, cotton manufacturing and agricultural labour. In colonial Australia at the same period, women were confined to kind of the first three of those. So domestic service, laundry work and dress manufacturing. And such a lack of options then during their working lives inevitably impacted their lives when they were no longer able to work. So as Daniels points out, those deserted by husbands through death, desertion, illness or unemployment lived on the edge of poverty. And it's estimated that throughout the 19th century, at least actually 10% of Australians lived in permanent poverty. So during the economic downturn in Van Diemen's land, many men 
left the colony, leaving behind women and children. Through looking at the institutions, so the pauper and charitable institutions, in which which essentially took in um, some of this population, the problems of poor ex-convict women are kind of revealed to us. They continue then to be dependent on government support, or they returned to dependence as they grew old and infirm and could no longer work. To a certain extent, when these women were still convicts, they did benefit um, from what we might call the welfare then of the state in terms of basic shelter and work, which when they became free, no longer existed for them automatically. So when emancipists are not able to work, they had to seek support from government or charity-run establishments, but they were only provided on condition of conforming to acceptable standards of behaviour. And this is not to say, of course, that assistance under sentence, um, so this welfare by the state while they were convicts, was not without issue. Women who became pregnant, for instance, were punished with six months in the factory after they'd given birth. And husbands often used the state to control their wiles while they were assigned to them. So by reporting what they saw as misbehavior, again, leading to the female being put back in the factory for a period of time. But it wasn't just fractured families that fell into poverty and institutionalization then. And this appears to be the case with Elizabeth Rowbottom. And this is the case study um, that I will look at. So Elizabeth Rowbottom, originally Elizabeth Jones, but also has an alias of Wolford as well. Now, Elizabeth was born in approximately 1828 at St. Pancras, London. She was convicted in 1842 for stealing from her master. And what she stole was one shawl worth two shillings and two pence, one bonnet worth six pence and three pence in change. And she was tried at the Old Bailey in London. And when she was in her trial, she stated to the prosecutor, quote, you gave me the bonnet to wear and lent me the shawl. You took me into your service at one shilling a week and my victuals. You never gave me a farthing of money and scarcely any victuals. Nevertheless, despite this kind of retort by Elizabeth, she was sentenced to seven years transportation. And there's also another indictment against her at the trial for stealing one gown and other articles to the value of 15 shillings, also the property of her master. So she left aboard the Garland Grove ship in 1842, and she arrived in Hobart three months later. She was 15 years of age. She was a member of the Church of England. She worked as a nurse girl before being transported and she could read and was described as having a pock-pitted face and being four foot 9.5 inches. Her father, John, was living in Edgeway Road in London and she had two other siblings as well. And all this kind of information is gathered from her description list. While in the colony, Elizabeth only committed three offences while she was under sentence. And they were all non-serious kind of regulatory or what might be known as status offences, including being absent without leave, misconduct and disobeying orders. For these offences, she generally received solitary confinement. But for the last offence, so disobeying orders, this resulted in six months hard labour at the wash tub. 
Elizabeth received her ticket of leave, though, between 1845 and 1847. The records are unclear. But she received her conditional pardon soon after in, I think it was 1848. And then in 1849, the year later, she was awarded her certificate of freedom. So she was now a free woman. And four years after freedom, Elizabeth married Henry Rowbottom, who was also a former convict himself, and he had arrived on the Ostler and Carter. Henry had been a tradesman, and he was transported also from London for seven years in 1844. In total, they had four children together between 1851 and 1858. The first child was actually born before they married. Elizabeth then really kind of disappears from the record. She doesn't, she isn't arrested or charged um, during this period of her marriage. And we only really see her when she has children and she um, is reported in those records. But then by the end of the century, Elizabeth um, is found in the Launceston Invalid Depot on a number of occasions, at least four that I found in the records, between 1897 and 1905. And she also stayed at Newtown Pauper Establishment as well between December 1902 and January the following year. But it was at Launceston Invalid Depot that she died in 1905, aged 74. And she was buried in Charles Street General Cemetery, where her husband was also buried. So kind of despite doing all the right things then, she married, she didn't commit very many offences and none that I could find after she had left the convict system. She had children, but she still ended up in the pauper establishment. And as Elizabeth's case demonstrates, just as with males moving between institutions, so did females as well. And there were a number of female charitable institutions. So, for example, Hobart Town General Hospital housed both male and female imperial and colonial pauper invalids. At the time, these kind of institutions were generalised. But in 1859, it was decided that charitable institutions based on institutional specialism was needed. So kind of categorizing those who were within their walls. And this later led to the establishment of Hobart Town Female Infirmary and Brickfields Invalid Depot. The latter was mainly for emancipist invalids. And while this was established fairly quickly or progressed fairly quickly for males, the fem- for the females it didn't. And as was often the case then, females were kind of an afterthought. It was 1861 before the female colonial invalids were accommodated, for example, at Cascades Female Factory. The 1850s and 1860s saw the establishment of a separate infirmary for women effectively keeping female patients and invalids separate, so moving towards specialism. And by 1867, Cascades was converted to kind of allow for the transfer of female invalids previously housed at Hobart Town General Hospital. And eventually then, the Newtown Charitable Institution became the cornerstone of Tasmania's charitable system. And this opened in 1874, when female invalids from Cascades were transferred there. 
The new rules introduced in 1879 at the Newtown Charitable Institution, which had a combination of male and females um, housed in within its walls, still emphasise, though, things we've discussed in a previous episode, cleanliness, discipline, order, routine. And while men then were subject to overcrowding and poor conditions, what Piper argues is that female invalids were subject to a far grimmer penal experience than most of the male counterparts. And indeed, the female invalids in Launceston had been sent to both penal and medical institutions up until as late as 1857. The Launceston Invalid Depot was reserved for males, and so females remained in overcrowded poor conditions. And Piper argues that female invalids were seen as kind of the worst contagion. And indeed, female invalids were held at both Port Arthur and the old Cascades female factory when they were fully operating prisons. There seems to have been little debate about the kind of propriety of housing these female invalids in penal spaces like there was for males at earlier times. So they were less female pauper emancipists then, and because of this, they weren't given much attention by the authorities. Men were certainly housed in poor and overcrowded conditions, as we've previously discussed, but there was a continuous debate surrounding men and the conditions that they were in, about improving their conditions and the buildings and fighting for more resources and classification was considered. And women were often an afterthought in this kind of discussion if they were discussed at all. Even women then, as we've seen in the case of Elizabeth Jones, even women who married and were able to earn their keep um, during their working lives after they had been freed from the convict system, still saw themselves in older age returning to the dependence of the institution. So many of the female pauper emancipists in these institutions were widows. So they had at one time formed families. So we're seeing here some of the same themes that we saw um, when we've looked at men, but there are some differences as well. So by looking at the females here, we've touched on some of the changing systems. So for example, the move towards specialization and categorization. And we will look at this in more detail in the next session, um, more broadly. So looking at male and female and the changing system. And we'll consider how the charitable system, the pauper system, changed over time and why. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Forgotten Convicts. 